0: That's the first thing a a baby does is figure out who's in its family and who's not, you know. So it's extremely natural uh, to gravitate to these communities and to say, you know, I root for Michigan. Therefore, you know, I believe in excellence or, you know, and, and leadership and all these things we're talking about.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports, media, disruption, innovation, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favarito, and we're here in mid-September with my co-host, Tom Richardson, as the semester has just kicked off. Tom, welcome back. How's everything?
2: Uh, thanks, Joe. I, um, I enjoyed texting with you last night in the middle of the first-ever streamed TNF game, regular season game, and I think we both came to the same conclusion quickly.
1: It's kind of like watching a football game. <laughs> it's, it's watching a football game. It's like, it's like the innovation of Live Golf. You're right. watching golf right and other than you know and we i'd be interested to get our guest's perspective on this too because other than still trying to figure out what dude perfect was trying to do which i didn't really get um the rest of it was just kind of okay it's a football game with talent that they spent a lot of money on although i thought richard sherman was pretty good um and as you said, the only problem was you couldn't switch to like Godfather two in the middle of the game. Like I immediately thought of that Jerry Seinfeld
2: quote, which I, which I tweeted, like, you know, men don't care what's on TV. They care what else is on TV because right. seriously the inability to flip. Cause I think those of us who are NFL fans, we kind of have a, a clock built into our brains and we know how long you can leave the, yeah. the broadcast to check out whatever an old Seinfeld, CNN, ESPN two whatever you want and uh it is strange not doing that it's not that big a deal to switch over to the other input or at least for me for mm-hmm. cable tv but that was an odd thing and the the other thing joe was that the um the ads are the ads are the ads i was going to tweet like meet the new ads same as the Nothing. old ads yeah. i mean in fact at one point i was timing them just to see how long if they were doing anything with the with the as they said the ad load yeah. and in the length of the pods but i i did one segment i think it was between quarters or two and a half minutes which i think is about average mm-hmm. so anyway it's kind of like a it's kind of a big anti-climax of
1: all the stuff. Know, moving yeah. to yeah so um and uh, you know it's funny the the only thing i put on twitter last night was they had the shot of the commissioner sitting with jeff bezos and i wrote something like you know so Jeff, so uh, Roger, when can I really buy the Commanders? Can you tell me when that is? So, uh,
2: well, yeah, I think it's pretty. Yeah, I mean, it's been reported that he's quite interested in potential yeah. NFL ownership, and God knows he has the money.
1: Yep. Uh, anyway, he,
2: uh, he could buy the whole league and and have money left over. So,
1: so, so Tom, speaking of buying and owning the whole league, <laughs> um, we're uh, we're going to talk a little about something that which we really don't talk a lot about, which is especially given. Columbia's been so successful over their history since Sid Luckman left in football, especially, you know. Um, but, you know, there's so much going on in the college space between NIL and which schools are going where, and particularly with the big 10. Um, a few weeks ago I was in Barnes and Noble and saw a book and I happened to go home. It was a Sunday and pick up the New York times. And lo and behold, there's the same author writing about a similar topic, obviously off his book a little bit, but it was really interesting to talk about and to talk to someone who is embedded in a big-time program at Ann Arbor, Michigan, and um, has has a very unique and, I would say, a little bit disruptive or a different point of view on where college football and where college athletics could be going, should be going, may not be going. Um, so our guest today is Ben mathis Lilly, who's the author of a new book, which you should pick up the hot seat, uh, and we're going to talk a little business of college football and the craziness of what's going on here in the fall of 2022. So Ben, welcome to The Cusp Show.
0: Thank you guys. It's nice to be here.
1: Yeah, Ben, really
2: good to have you. So let's, let's start with um, the motivation for the book. So obviously you got uh, permission to be an embedded writer with Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan football team last year. It was 2021, correct? Um, yeah, although- so that, was... that, that, that didn't just happen. Obviously you had to do some work to get to, to that point. So tell us that story.
0: Uh, Well, so I, I wish I had been more embedded, uh, actually, Uh, one one way I ended up uh, writing the book was to kind of embed myself in the Michigan fan community as much as with the team. Uh, I did get to go to I do I was in the um, uh, press, one one of the press conferences of the games I went to, and I got some tours uh, beforehand locker room and the facilities stadium and so forth. But I think uh, actually, for the most part. Uh, Michigan, speaking of the business of sports, Michigan is such a powerful brand and uh, such a lucrative brand that they don't really have to do any favors for writers or journalists uh, in order to, to sell season tickets and uh, achieve brand consciousness, whatever, however you might put it. So uh, yeah, I, I've, I grew up in Michigan is the, is the short answer to your question. Uh, I've always been a Michigan football fan since I was about seven years old. Uh, Became a journalist writing about mostly news and politics at Slate, uh, touching on business also, and kind of noticed that my two interests intersected in certain ways. Uh, The the example that people have really taken to is, if you look at the population decline in northern Ohio, uh, people moving out of northern Ohio because of the, the decline of manufacturing. Corresponds with the decline of Michigan football to some extent, uh, mm-hmm. until recent years when there's been a bit of a revival. You know, so I thought it was fascinating the way that that kind of factors like that, maybe you know, national, political, cultural factors uh, affected this game on the field, which you know is is for many people, most people, just a diversion, something to distract them from the rest of the real world. So that's uh, that's how I got into writing about it. Not only myself as a fan, but kind of like uh, if if anything, maybe it's like me as a journalist writing about why my mind works this way as a fan.
1: Cool. Um, judging from, especially in the article in the Times, my guess is you're not a big fan of when the Rutgers volleyball team is going to go play USC. Um, <laughs> and and um, talk a little bit about, you know, even from your fandom perspective, but also from from a journalistic point of view, um, your thoughts, which people may not know if they haven't read the book or the articles yet about, you know, kind of the, the new age of of um, especially Large-scale college football, even tied to the Big Ten, and why it's, in your opinion, it's good, bad, or indifferent towards uh, towards where the sport, the sports landscape, is going to go in the next few years.
0: Sure. So I, I wrote an article for the uh, Times business section, Sunday business section. Uh, the headline that we put on it was, does watching college football on TV have to be so miserable? Uh, and I opened the article with, with you know, a description of honestly, just an average game. Um, you are watching the game. It's supposed to kick off at, at, let's say, noon. It actually kicks off later than that. If it's a night game, it probably even later kickoff uh, relative to the announced start time. You're watching a few minutes a game here, a few minutes a game there. There is, you know, there might be 16 commercials that air before eight minutes have elapsed of game time. Uh, and, you know, and, the, and the, the broadcast you might realize is going on for four hours. <laughs> and the, but the thing about it is you're going to watch anyway because it's your team and you have no other choice. There's no other nowhere else to watch uh, Michigan football if you're a Michigan football fan. And the same is obviously true of, of any sports uh, team, sports brand. But when as I get into the landscape of college football is, is unique in some ways that make the experience a little more aggravating even. It's not even quite as streamlined a product uh, as, as Thursday night football or as an NFL game uh, because of some factors particular to, to uh, the college game.
2: Yeah, so related to that, you wrote, a, uh, I guess, a follow-up piece. I don't know whether it's the timing of the Times article versus the Slate article that I happened to read before we got together, um, where you kind of, as you said, summarized a bit of what's in the book. Uh, which came first, by the way, was it the, the Times piece?
0: The Slate article happened to be before, but that was just because as, as a the, the impetus for that Slate piece was Jim Harbaugh making these comments about abortion and appearing at an, uh, a pro-life fundraiser. So we we kind of put that together quickly because we had planned to do it a little later when the book came out and we said, oh, wait, this guy is in the news now, as he often is. Uh, so we should, we should get that together, yeah.
2: Yeah, so this is a two-part question then based on that. One is about... Harbaugh and the coach and the others about the fans and their behavior and the way they're expressing their fervor, you know, for for the team. Um, So you can take a little bit of time on each one because I think each is quite interesting. I'll start with the one where I want to actually quote from your article, uh, and that is about the fans. There was a line that that stood out to me, which I'm going to read right now. College football is covered by an increasingly nationalized media for which the stoking of viral controversy is one of the only viable business tactics and it's fans who to repeat have plausible reasons to see its games as referendums on their educational and or geographical worth have access to technology that allows them to be stoked obsessively day and night. I teach the digital media class. So that line got me because it's something we talk about. There's new ways to engage, delight and rage. Fill in fill in all the verbs you want fans and it's and it never stops and it's all over the place. So that was a really interesting line. Talk about that for a second. Then I'll get to question number two.
0: Sure, that goes back to a little bit of, of of the origin of the book project, which is that I, before I thought of writing about Michigan, I was a Michigan football fan, and I am an obsessive Michigan football fan. And uh, as people might know, Michigan had a pretty rough period from about let's say two thousand seven till you could say last year. So there was always something to be thinking about, like why is this going wrong? What's happening? Well, you know, what's what is what like what has caused this decline? And there's always somewhere to go and talk about it with people. There's always a message board. And once Twitter got popular, there's always people on Twitter. I have, I go into the book. There's a a group I'm in that is 13 other Michigan fans. And we, we direct message each other on Twitter. And I have a different email list of, of, a completely separate group of Michigan fans that I talk about talk to about the team. So I had kind of had this thought of like, wow, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really subjecting myself this to to this uh, in part because of this technology that didn't exist twenty years ago when I started watching the games. Uh, and so I I wanted to get into that a little bit, and and that kind of coincided with an article I had written again in my day job about Fox uh, Sports and. Uh, when Fox Sports hired a bunch of talent and the uh, head producer Jamie Horowitz from ESPN and kind of recreated um, the you know the talk show the hot take model throughout their throughout their programming, and so one thing and then the third third component of it is that I I'm a writer and and I know that if a story is outrageous or provocative, it's probably going to be clicked more. Probably going to do better uh, in the digital world than a story that is takes a more nuanced stance or has a more uh, balanced headline. Let's say. And so I kind of realized, you know, at some point working on the book that that these were factors were all combining. You know, the the one way I summarize the book is why does the sport drive us so crazy? And and one reason it does is because one reason it does is because of things that are timeless. Uh, I you know factors related to our identity and and who we are is humans and, and and residents of the United States, those are some timeless factors. There are also some very timely ones, and, and those are the ones that you're talking about. Uh, you could certainly drive yourself crazier now than you could in 1995, 1965, and so forth, uh, watching or thinking about college football.
2: So, yeah. And, I'm, and do you think part of it is, is being it's, it's willfully being stoked by these platforms to your point? I mean, this is kind of a bigger question for journalism and media, but in sports, you're right. Cause there, there are these inherent passions that fans have. And when the, when the, the going gets tough, that can get ugly. And we've seen that obviously in, in, in live, uh, events and, and we've seen it certainly online. So do you, do you see that fluctuating with the relative success or lack of success of the team?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I think the the one thing I, one way to put it is that, it, you know, uh, the question of whether how much this is intentional that someone is trying to, a person like Paul Feinbaum or Colin Coward uh, or a media figure like that. Skip Bayless is always asked about this. How much is it intent, you know, how intentional is it that these people are trying to make, some fan base mad versus this is what skip Bayless actually thinks, you know, skip Bayless kind of famously says he believes a hundred percent in everything he says, and he never does anything tongue in cheek. You know, I I don't know if I believe that, but you know, as I, as I've realized when Michigan was successful last year, you know, everyone likes to have fun with some, it's always fun when it's some other fan fan base, you know, it's always fun when it's the Cowboys that you're laughing at uh, or Notre Dame or what have you. But when it's Michigan, when it's your team, it does feel like, Oh, there's this conspiracy to make me mad and, and get my money or get my clicks and get my social engagement by making me mad. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would say that it's entirely intentional. I don't think necessarily that the people who are running ESPN are, are entirely cynical uh, and and saying things they don't believe uh, just to make people upset. That said, as someone who's you know this works for me too. Just writing about politics, we have the tools now to see in very in real time what are what are people clicking on. Are they clicking on? We we just did a test of four headlines for a piece I wrote for Slate. So you can see what what people are interested in, and then naturally you want to be successful. You're going to gravitate toward those topics. So yeah, I wouldn't say that's necessarily. Always done just to rile someone up uh, in an exploitative way, uh, but but naturally, given the tools we have and the forums we now have, things that are controversial and product- provocative are going to do better, and, and then they're going to be reproduced because that's it's a you know it's a business, and and the bi- businesses want to succeed.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, uh, and I would throw this out to Joe too that we're we're kind of witnessing this right now with the retooling of CNN. You guys probably know what's going on there. They're basically come to the conclusion, the new CEO, that they wanna be more down the middle, be, be less uh, opinionating, do less opinionating and, and, and more hard news, which I think makes sense theoretically. And they're, they're already alienating all kinds of people based on this decision from what I've been reading. And it is interesting for these media outlets because sports in a way reflects the same challenge that news has to the in digital media with the clicks and obviously the more provocative stuff. Getting more, but my my last question for you, Ben, on on this particular point is: Do you think there's a you, you specifically referenced the national media versus local? Because in a way, you know, you have that Michigan crowd literally local local Michigan folks, and then you have Michigan grads all over the country and the world who are hardcore fans. But but in your in your opinion, do you see big variances, kind of based on The proximity, like, is there some? is is there a different kind of thing going on with the locals?
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought it back to that. I I did want to talk about that. That's one of the aspects of the of the 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 experience that is frustrating that I got into in The New York Times piece, Uh, because uh, college football has become the second most lucrative sports property uh, and because networks have realized hey we should show every single one of these games it doesn't matter if it's a big game it doesn't matter if it's a national brand we got to have them all on somewhere so you have that element of it uh that is unique to college football and, and i guess college basketball also uh where announcers may not be that familiar with the team um it's a uh, i i think i went through it uh for a, a northwestern uh in 2018 where i was on like seven network different networks or something so you have these announcers and these and these production teams that may not be super familiar with the with the teams that they're broadcasting you also have the the decline which again is something you guys are i'm sure very familiar with of of local journalism there's not as many local reporters covering a team simply because there are fewer local newspapers um and so you have this kind of nationalization of of narratives is probably the way to put it and so when i when i was talking about my own experience that goes back to hearing every single you know game a couple times. How Jim Harbaugh hadn't beat Ohio State, uh, and on one level, of course, it's true. That is probably the biggest story about Jim Harbaugh uh, and his tenure at Michigan. And if, if you're doing a national broadcast, you probably should mention it. That said, as you as you allude to. Uh, some huge portion of the, the audience for Michigan games is people who either live there or went there or are diehard fans of the team and have watched every game. So they don't need to be reminded of this uh, failure of Harbaugh's and of the of the programs. and and it can become a little it can become a little bit repetitive and a little bit frustrating to be watching every week and kind of be have the announcers kind of reintroduce themselves to the same facts that it's that that you've heard over and over and over. and then and then, as i is, as, as we talked about earlier, those are the same things that Paul Feinbaum is talking about and the same things that Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless are talking about it. So that was kind of my frustration over this period of the last few years. It's like this thing that I'm so interested in and I want to spend all this time on it, but I'm only hearing one thing. I'm only hearing one thing all the time. Harbaugh can't beat Ohio State. Harbaugh can't win the big games. And so, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, it's not the most serious problem in the world. Uh, It's not probably more important than a lot of the, uh, the things I write about in, in politics and in the news, but it is frustrating as a as a consumer and as a, just as a person.
1: So the, the funny part of that is um, you could walk the streets of New York and ask people about college football, and most people would give you kind of a quizzical look because it, it doesn't resonate in a lot of the big cities, which still astounds me, um, but is really kind of a, the uniqueness of, of big city life in New York where you've got professional teams, which are professional teams. One of the things I'd love you to touch on is kind of the the nature of the fandom that you discovered writing it, not from a, you know, a beat writer perspective at Michigan, but from a fan's perspective. And, and what are the, were there surprises that you came across in going through the process of the book of people that you met that you were surprised about, or, you know, what, what were some of the takeaways that, that people would love to know about, you know, being around uh, Big Blue for, for the period of time you were? And then, and Joe, let me just pin on part
2: two of my question, which relates to that point. You, you talk a lot about Jim Harbaugh, obviously. I um, want to get your thoughts on what's happened to this idolatry of certain college football coaches, this mm-hmm. mythology and idolatry that we've been witnessing, especially with Nick Saban in Alabama, but we've seen it with Davos. I mean, look, there's a yeah. long line of him. Harbaugh, despite his relative lack of success as a coach, is kind of in that crowd. And you talk, I, I think quite eloquently about all his many contradictions as a man, as a human being, which were fascinating to me. But I, the, my question is, is, is that more of a, a net positive or negative that a program like Michigan has a coach of that ilk?
0: Right. All right. Uh, so let's see. The, the um... The first question, which is the first question, which is the first one I'm addressing
1: kind of of like take us through the fandom experience. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: sure. Surprise. Yeah. So I think that one thing I was surprised by is that uh, players and administrators and coaches uh, who I spoke to were were a lot less cynical than the fans I spoke spoke to and the fans that I interact with on a regular basis. Now, I I do think that might just be some sort of selection effect. I'm a journalist. I'm a skeptical person. Um, I surround myself probably naturally with skeptical people. Um, but I think uh, there is a perception among a lot of fans of college football, uh, is particularly maybe younger ones these days who, who believe that the the business model is corrupt, um, you know, uh, for reasons that are related to NIL. Uh, there's a cynicism about the players, and there was kind of an expectation. I had an expectation going in that what if I talked to players, they would think of themselves as, as kind of like free agents, as people who are maximizing their their professional potential, their marketing potential. And the fact that they were at the University of Michigan, you know, they might find it pleasant to be there, but their their main goals didn't really have anything to do with Michigan as a place or Ann Arbor or uh, or so forth. Uh, that wasn't what I found at all. You know, again, I only talked to a, a couple handfuls of players and coaches, so you know, this is this is just my experience. Um, but I found that actually the players, the coaches, uh, the people around the program are very are true believers in, in, in Michigan's ideals? And I'm sure that the same would be true if you went to any other program. Um, yeah, in fact, the same was, you know, Ryan Clark, as I, I spoke to Ryan Clark, who's now on ESPN, a great LSU player. And he was, you know, just as articulate about, um, you know, and, and emphatic about, about why he liked LSU, why he went to LSU as, as Michigan's players were about that, even though Ryan Clark has been critical of LSU in, in some facets, which is all to say, like, um, I was surprised as both a fan and as a journalist by the amount of true belief in the, in the purpose of college sports. Um, I thought I'd, I'd get, you know, especially off the record, I thought people would be a little more cynical about it, uh, about the necessity of going to class about Michigan's, um, self-conception as a place that is, is molding young men and leaders and and young men and women to lead the community in addition to playing the sport. But they were, everyone I talked to was, was very serious about that. Um, so that segues nicely into the uh, into the second uh, question about the idolatry of, of Harbaugh and, and other figures. Um, it's tough to say if it's a net positive. I think that my answer would be that it's that that something like college football is inevitable in, in a way, if that makes sense. Uh, if you just consider what who people are and, and how people's brains work. They want to have some idea of who they are, and they want to belong to a community, right? So that's like about the most natural Mm -hmm. impulse that people can have. Uh, I was talking to a philosophy professor who grew up as a huge LSU fan, and and she noted to me that like, that's the first thing a a baby does is figure out who's in its family and who's not, you know, so it's extremely natural uh, to, to gravitate to these communities and to say, I'm from Michigan, therefore... Or, you know, I root for Michigan, therefore, you know, I believe in excellence or, you know, and, and leadership and all these things we're talking about, just as an LSU fan might say, I'm from Louisiana, we, you know, we know how to have a good time. We're great cooks, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a different thing for everybody. Um, I think that it's, it's, you can't really, you, you can't really suppress that urge in people. So I guess I would say that, that the the important thing is just to like, to be, a, to be aware, to be mindful of, of. The, the problems that that can create as well. Uh, I don't recommend for anyone, you know, giving up sports fandom, uh, because just, you know, just simply because there are there can be downsides to it. But that said, like, yes, you're, I think, alluding to, like, if you see um, in programs like Penn States, or uh, uh, Baylor, or um, even at Michigan, there, there was a, there's a, 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 a kind of an ongoing sexual abuse scandal um, at Michigan. Obviously, there are some very, very severe downsides to this as well. So I certainly I don't I don't like to think of myself as idolizing Jim Harbaugh. I think he's he's a very interesting person to study I like to observe him I guess I'd say uh, and I you know I get a kick out of certain things he does because you know he's a, he's a he's a funny guy but yeah I think that we should be cognizant that that uh, you know that these are people and and that while well, they might represent ideals that we believe very strongly in like a, a person and a, and and a and a value are not the same thing
1: cool hey um we do talk about business in addition to fandom um, you were at Michigan doing the, the pieces of the book really kind of pre or just beginning NIL and before the transfer portal is now kind of exploded. Has your opinion of what you just talked about for especially for athletes, student athletes, do you think that will change going forward? Or do you think if you could, eventually you won't be able to do this, but now ostensibly you could transfer to four different schools in five years, and you know, do you suddenly go and have a drawer full of clothes for each one, or, yeah. or is it that, you know, did, did that play into your mind? But more importantly, especially given your political take, how do you think that will change fandom going forward?
0: You know, I, I I don't see it. I think that the 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 danger to that is that rosters get really unstable, and you're just rooting for an entirely new collection of people every year. Um, but to tie into one of my previous answers. I actually don't see that being that much of a threat for one. There's the fact that a lot of people have already have mentioned that, that many players who transfer don't find a home. And so there's going to be some sort of market equilibrium, uh, finding itself, uh, that, and and we probably won't see as many transfers, uh, in the coming years as we've seen as you know, in this year that the the portal really opened. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if naturally there's more stability. I also think, uh, that the players themselves do have these ties to particular places and not just a particular place. It's not as if, you know, they might love the university of Michigan or Ohio state in the abstract, but they also come in with, with a class of, of, you know, 25, some people, they, they, they have very close relationships with certain coaches, the people who recruited them. And I think one thing, another thing I was surprised by, or or maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by it, but I was reminded of it. That football is a very intimate game. Um, You're, you're working in a locker room. you're, you're wrestling with these guys, you're tackling them on the field. Like, so these players develop very strong attachments to each other. Um, and I think, so those things are going to hold them to particular programs. Um, you know, they like playing for a certain coach. They like the, the, the their teammates, the p- people on their side of the ball, their position group. And I think those things are, are, are stronger ties than 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 we give them credit for a lot of the times in the press and as fans. So I, I, you know, especially now, and if anything NIL allows players to, not have to um seek out an, another uh, another team you know just for their own self-interest you know because you can you can make some money now as a second string player at
2: well Michigan. not in every not in every state and one of the criticisms is that states that have legalized it have a huge advantage for recruiting sure. oh sure even though there may be better matches for the athlete or the student athlete
0: i i think that stuff will all get i you know i don't know how quickly but i i tend to think that that even at a place like Michigan, um, the the administration, the athletic department is not going to put up for too long uh, with being at a disadvantage in in any way. Um, <laughs> right. You know, th- yeah. they may limit themselves a little bit in terms of academics and, and so forth uh, compared to some other schools, but, you know, uh, they, they're going to, they're not going to, Michigan is never going to um, voluntarily turn itself into a second tier program. And But it's, and,
2: it's legal in Michigan, correct? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, it's, yeah. It's, so did you, so Ben, on that note, did you, witness any early discussions around nil with the folks you were talking to last summer i did speak to or last fall i should say
0: yeah yeah i i mean i spoke to one of the regents at the university of michigan he's still one of the regents um his name is jordan acker and he before the season told me that how pleased he was that this had happened because he he is, uh, as I'm sure many officers of these schools are, in addition to being a, a serious professional person and a, a political figure in Michigan, he's also an enormous Michigan football fan. So mm-hmm. his interests uh, they all intersected um, in in getting this NIL passed in the state of Michigan and getting the University of Michigan to adopt it, uh, which is you know a- another way to say um, that's why these I, I that's why I think that these. Uh, Practices are going to be pretty widely adopted, um, you know, <laughs> everywhere sooner rather than later. Because the people, po- politicians, are, are football fans. Uh, their voters are football fans, and and as I get into the book, that's not a coincidence. That's that's one of the reasons that these schools embraced football in the first place is because they realized uh, that it's a way to build influence within their community, even with people who aren't aren't students. Like the example at Michigan that's that's famous within Michigan is. Um, they, to build Michigan Stadium, they sold bonds, and if you bought a you bought one of the bonds, even if you were not a student or an alum, you got season tickets in the middle of the field. So, you know, it's not a coincidence that these that these connections exist, and, and that's why I, w- I would say I think we're the nil uh, playing field will, will be pretty even pretty quickly.
1: Um, question on kind of like the the student experience that you witnessed, not just when you were doing the book, but beforehand. And how that that's kind of evolved i was listening to or watching bob costas on his latest show on hbo this week and he had larry fitzgerald on and was talking about the college experience tied to nil and the transfer portal and the same things and larry fitzgerald said yep costas's take was at the end of the day you're getting a scholarship which has value although some people say it does not have value i think it does but um larry fitzgerald had an interesting point he said you know you're limited if you're a student athlete especially a football player in the number of credits you can take, the classes you can take, the timing you can take. Uh, and then the hope is that you continue to do that after you're done with your eligibility and finish out your degree. And that's kind of the value of being around campus. Did did academics, when you were either on or off the record, when you were talking to so many people of various ilks around Michigan, come up as a topic or is it an afterthought?
0: Uh, it's absolutely a topic. And, and again, I, I can't necessarily speak to... Uh, every other school out there um but if you look i mean if you look at the numbers in terms of graduation rate and 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 um and the the metrics that the ncaa keeps there are a lot of schools that are on michigan's level um a lot of other programs that are pretty good at football that that have similar uh levels of achievement yes it was something that 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 almost everyone i talked to brought up um and and even someone i was speaking to not to use their name I said, you know, how serious is the, the whole going to class thing? And they said oh, it's very serious, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and 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 I think the number that was thrown out there to me was maybe sixty percent of the the football players at Michigan. They really like going to, you know, they're they're in they're in, they're, they're in in that that environment because they want to have good academics. Maybe forty percent the football comes first to them, and the academics are just kind of something they have to do. But either way, it is it is communicated to them that they, they do need to go and they do need to be, you know, keeping up with their, with their studies. So, yeah, I think that's, that's something that they take very seriously. And I, I, I don't want to contribute to the uh, idea of Michigan exceptionalism by saying that that's unique to Michigan. Um, certainly I think there are many other schools where, where that's probably true. There are probably schools where that's not as true.
2: Uh, is, so- that, it, is that extended into recruiting? Cause I know through throughout most of its history as a primary, Football program Notre Dame has allegedly had more stringent controls on the recruiting, uh, which is one reason they it's been said that they may not do as well consistently. Um, did you get any sense of that? Because it, it's, I mean, it's kind of a, a well-known secret that some schools just have very low standards. Sure. I, yeah. You know what
0: I thought I actually thought was interesting uh, and surprised me was um, the degree to which that's actually driven by the players and the students and that they actually kind mm-hmm. of self-select because um, I'd always thought of it in the way you're describing like, oh, well, you know, Notre Dame is so tough. If, if you try to get a player in there who who had a D average in high school, you know, they're not going to they're not going to let that player in. Uh, I talked to Bud Elliott, who's, a, who's the national recruiting expert for uh, 24-7 sports, and he made this point to me that, that programs have certain personalities and, and certain cultures, and the players know that, too. Uh, their parents know that. So Michigan does tend to get a lot of guys who, uh, in high school... You know, had a resume that's three pages long and it seems superhuman that this guy was the valedictorian of his class and he's a four star wide receiver, you know, and his dad's a doctor and and his mom is, uh, you know, is a PhD, you know, they, they, they draw people like that, including some of the, the guy, some of the guys I talked to said, my mom always wanted me to be make sure I was, you know, doing my schoolwork and so when we started getting recruited for college, we looked at Michigan right away. So I think that that's maybe a, a part of it that people don't think about as much as that. That's, and, and if there's someone, you know, and I, I'm not saying this any judgment, if there's someone who's 17 years old and, and knows that they're not that interested in getting a, a business degree or a sociology degree or what have you, and they're pretty confident that they have NFL level skills, that person might be more interested in a school that has even more success getting players to the NFL than Michigan has. Um, and it, you know, I think that's fine. Um, and the other one that, that Bud brought up to me, uh, but Elliot was, um, Clemson. If you look at, uh, you know, if you look at David Sweeney, he's a very outspoken Christian. Um, and so if you're a player who is 16 and, and the most important thing in your life is, is, is God and, and going to church and, 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 uh, you know, being public about your faith, You're probably going to be drawn to Clemson more than you're drawn to the University of Michigan. You know, all all things considered. So I think that the players do some of that self-selecting themselves.
1: Interesting. Last question from me, uh, Ben. Going back to the Times article, you you talked about kind of the death of not the death, but kind of the the re re reimagining of college football. And obviously, you did the book before the you know the overlords of the Big Ten decided to to link East Coast and West Coast. And probably will continue to do so with other places. Um, Good, bad, indifferent, if you're a fan of Michigan, do you think people really care? And then from a business perspective, obviously the cash influx from all those networks is going to be great. But do you see kind of a dark side of this whole thing?
0: Yeah, I see the dark side is is uh, something I noticed particularly going to. F- I went to five games, three of them at Michigan, two of them at other places in person last year. I'm a, I I usually go to one game at most college football game, uh, in person. Although I have been to a Columbia University football game. Not a lot of people can say really? that. Wow. Uh, yeah, two f- two free beers for the price of a ticket. It's a pretty good deal. <laughs> a good
1: deal.
0: Uh, yeah, and the tickets are are not are not that expensive. So yeah, I, it's something. By
1: the way, a what's that? Location beautiful
0: location oh yeah. yeah yeah tremendous great great atmosphere um so yeah i think it's one thing i noticed um it's it's, it's very, very striking when you're at a game how long those commercial breaks are and and i complain about it in the times article as a, as a tv viewer but it's obviously even more noticeable when you're you know smashed in between 100,000 other people your phone's not get, really getting service there's there's nothing else to do and you look up on that on the clock. Some of the stadiums have the, the countdown clock showing you how long the break is, and it's, it says clashes four minutes up there. And you thought, oh, you know. And you can hear this to sigh go through the crowd, you know. Uh, and hey, you you add that to the replay reviews, and it and it's it's a four hour experience going to a game. Sometimes even longer. And so I think to to answer your question, uh, the the kind of the obvious possibility for me is that this uh, maximization of the game for TV. Um, means that people will stop going to the, the actual live events with such frequency. And, and what I argue, uh, and maybe this is wishful thinking as a, as a fan, fan, someone who's a fan first, I think the lifeblood of college football, even as a TV product, is that it's an exciting atmosphere. Um, you know, as someone I sp- spoke to, Richard Johnson of Sports Illustrated, um, said in, to me uh, when I was working on the book, the great thing about college football is you can turn on a a TV in New York city and start and think about what people are doing in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or, or, you know, or, or in Los Angeles or in, in Eugene, Oregon and all these places. And it really gives you a feel for being somewhere else and seeing other kinds of people and seeing what they're excited about. And, and you have, you know, statistically there have been declines in attendance, even at the top programs like Alabama. Um, And so the, the, the solutions that the administrators usually come up with for that are like more perks at the game or better cell service. And I, I think that's a little bit of maybe that's putting the head in putting their heads in the sand because I think the obvious problem is the, the games take much longer than they used to, and it's not as fun to just sit there um, in the in the heat or cold as it may be uh, for that long. When you when you know when you're, there are other uh, options available, being on TV, going to a, a game, an NFL game doesn't take that long. Going to a basketball game certainly doesn't take that long, and so forth. So yeah, I, I I'm, I'm going on a little, at a little length about this, but to answer your question, I, I think that the the expansion of the Big Ten in many ways is great for big 10 fans, especially if they continue to consolidate with the PAC 12 or the former PAC 12, um, that those are historical rivalries because of the Rose bowl. Um, This is, this is very specific to the situation, but I don't, I've never, I haven't talked to any Michigan fan who is upset that they might be playing UCLA or Oregon because they they remember playing these teams in the past. And so it fits into the tradition of the college sport. Uh, But that said, you know, the, the thing we haven't gotten into is that I think is the, the defining feature of college sports as a business is no one's really in charge. Um, there's no commissioner. There, there's no, there's no vote of the owners even in some, in some of these things. And so you have these arms races that can just escalate and escalate. The SEC, SEC makes their commercials longer. The big 10 has got to make theirs longer because they, they, they've got to keep up with them financially. Uh, and so that's, that's where I would see the danger if they, if these kind of, Two competing factions that are emerging: the South and the North, and the South and everyone else. Um, if they can't uh, can't kind of get together to to set some limitations that that uh, you know that allow the sport to retain its um, its vibrancy as a live event, I think that could be a problem.
2: All right, my last question, Joe, is about journalism. I want to get your thoughts on what it's like to be a journalist in 2022? I think one of the interesting things Great. to note is how journalists back in you know, when Joe and I were young. Uh, They could just be good journalists. They didn't have to worry about social media. They didn't have to worry about appearing on TV and speaking all the time. They could focus on the craft of being uh, good journalists. Now, we know that at least the successful ones, and and this is uh, an outsider's point of view, um, you have to be good at social media. You have to be comfortable going on TV. In fact, many of the commentators on cable news, as we know, are not TV personalities. They're writers who are being dragged into the studio for their opinions. Some do it well, some not so well. Um, and you have to continue to hustle to stay at, ahead of everybody else that you're kind of competing with from a journalistic standpoint. Seems like a, a pretty, pretty challenging vocation. So, so it sounds like you're navigating it well. What, what's your secret? What's going on?
0: <laughs> I hope I'm navigating it well. Uh, that that uh, uh, question speaks to me. Particularly as an author of a book, uh, the the you know the same things you said about about journalism could also be said about about writing and publishing. Mm -hmm, Uh, Even if you're a a writer of fiction, a novelist, um, you're expected to to have a social presence and to try to be kind of hustling lots of interviews for yourself and and appearances and that sort of thing. Um, You know, I I I would say you know I don't mind I don't mind talking to people. I think it's actually useful for uh, writing to you know if, if you can't explain something to someone. In, in a few seconds, you're probably not a good writer, you, uh, you know? So <laughs> I, it's actually, like, you know, in the process of writing the book, it took about five years to get it all together. Like I had to talk to a lot of people about it. And I think that was useful for focusing my thoughts and, and making me understand what, what the book was really about. So, you know, I don't think it's all bad, certainly. I think that the, the bigger problem is, is, again, one you've probably, you've probably uh, addressed here is uh, there's an in- increasingly small amount of revenue that's available, uh, for, for any media entity that's not closely affiliated with Amazon or Apple or, or Facebook or Google. Uh, and so that's kind of what leads to the situation uh, that you're talking about with everyone having to do as much as they can on an individual basis to get attention. Uh, because like the, the pie is getting smaller, uh, so you got to do as much as you can to get your own slice. And I, I think that is a, I would say, concerning long-term trend. I, I don't really... You know, I have my own thoughts about what should be done about it, but I'm not an antitrust expert, so I'm um, not. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm, not sure I'm the, the right person to ask. But uh, that that to me is the concerning thing. Is just looking at how many, um, how many of uh, my peers, are you know, lay, how, how often layoffs are happening. Um, you know, how how many times uh, uh, media outlets are. Forced to pivot their strategies and try something completely different in this kind of desperate search for to get their hands on a, on a little bit of the advertising. So that's to me is the biggest problem. It, more so than being on Twitter, which I'm I, to be honest, I'll be on Twitter no matter what. Um, so you know, I don't feel I don't feel that burdened by that.
2: But are you like? Are, do you approach Twitter with with strategy about your self interest?
0: Um, I I I make an effort not to, uh <laughs> because I think that that I you know. Um, I didn't ever think of myself as someone who needed to be extremely successful enough to have to censor myself when I wanted to talk about Michigan football on Twitter. So, if anything, I kind of, I, you know, what I do is I try to maximize um, my my career uh, within the things I'm interested in, as instead of vice versa. So, I don't really think strategically about what I say or what I'm interested in, but I do. Try to make, uh, you know, my interests into my into my job, if that makes sense. And I think it's something that I've obviously done with this book about about watching football on TV.
2: Yeah, it's interesting um, thing. Just as a last thought, Joe, just how different journalists approach Twitter uh, specifically. Some I think really overdo it, like they're they're just they're just putting too much out there, and others I think probably could do more. Um, but typically, it seems kind of obvious that a lot of it's transactional. They're just looking for the click to the article, they're looking for the click to the book purchase or whatever, right. which is which is understandable, but I think it's got to be balanced with what I'd call more valuable high protein content you'd expect mm-hmm. from a good thinker. I
0: I would say you know what? I, I do try to have a balance of of content, uh, you know, and not uh, not uh, to have all, all my posts just, uh, you know, filled with exclamation points. Buy my points. book, buy my book. Yeah, exactly. No, I try to, you know, I try to, I try to have some substantive thoughts from time to time. That said, I don't, I don't, I don't censor myself, I think as much as probably some people do.
1: Cool. Hey, um, one last question before Tom, we could wrap it up if you want to yeah. do the wrap up stuff, but um, going back to what you were talking about before real quickly, uh, the leaning forward or the crystal ball uh, for you, Ben, going forward about college football as the must have to has to happen is it a football czar is it going to 12 teams is it consolidation of the big five leagues or adding a couple more what are the one or two things you think must happen for this vibrant business to continue to grow and not kind of cannibalize itself
0: Uh, you know what i i'll answer that creatively and say that i i think that the the urges that i talk about in the book are so powerful that there's almost no way you can screw them up um maybe maybe i'd add game you know game safety to that Uh, i i think that not a not a original thought by any stretch, but I think that the if if I've having a conversation with someone about college football uh, who doesn't watch it, the the reason that they always cite is that they feel the game of football itself is too dangerous. So mm-hmm. you know, which is I, I don't know that there is necessarily an, an answer to that. Um, as many people have also pointed out, football is an inherently dangerous sport. Um, you you, if you take collisions out of football, it's not football anymore. Uh, so that would be you know. Uh, probably the the thing that I've um, seen or heard cited most often as a reason why people don't watch college football and I actually believe them. You know, there's a lot of people who say, oh, I'm not going to watch the NFL anymore because of this or that. Right. I get so sick. Of, you look at me. I get so sick of the commercials, but I, I'm going to watch all four hours of the Michigan game this week, no matter what. But but if you talk to people who don't watch football, there, there are some people who really have given it up because they, they think it's not a, you know, not an ethical thing to do to watch football. So that's probably the thing I'd, I'd say they have to get figured out. Um, you know, and there was some ways that they, they've already started to address it and, and there are more ways that they could, but that's probably to me, the biggest existential threat rather than anything related to the, to the business.
2: Cool. All right, I'm going to boil this down to one question, to a little bit of a twist on the career thing. Uh, Ben, we usually ask about career stuff and about information, but I think we kind of got a sense of the information you're a writer. So you're probably reading everything, but on the, on the, on the advice front, the vast majority of us are obviously not professional writers, but we all know those those of us who work in business and in education, writing is a, a, a really crucial skill to develop. And it, it, the the ability to write well varies widely, as Joe and I have seen over the years, both in business and, and in uh, school. What, how do how do young people improve their writing skills? If they're not going to become journalists or not going to be professional writers, but how do you how do, what do you think works? For young people, especially who are kind of more taking their careers whatever direction they go in seriously, where writing is a facet that 's going to ultimately be somewhat important what what can they do what should how should they approach it
0: uh, well hey, I have two answers to that one is maybe not as re- reproducible I, I my mother's a preschool teacher, and my, my father's a chemical engineer, so it was about the best possible combination of Encouraging creativity, but also precision. Uh, my, you know, she would she would give me books to read, and she taught me to read, and, and then my dad would edit my papers and 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 you know, uh, you know, mark up uh, my essays uh, where I was when at sections where I was being imprecise or, or not as clear as I could be. Uh, so that was probably the answer for me. Um, I think that the 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 thing I encourage anyone who asks that question to do is just to write as often as possible in any forum that you can, even if it's for free, even if it's just for your own blog. Um, in some ways, this book came out of me realizing that I spent so much time thinking and writing about football that I ought to probably put it to some use uh, in my in my in my day job. Um, you know, I'm spending uh, all this time writing these emails and, uh, uh, about about Michigan in the in the first place. Um, but yeah, that's I, I you know, and I think writing uh showing your work to to people who can be critical of it you know uh an editor um just a friend you know a teacher
2: a teacher teacher, yeah
0: yeah. and i think that maybe you know what maybe the best way to boil it down is just to be really critical um i think that i don't i don't think i write better first drafts than anyone um i think i'm just maybe more critical even than many writers of my own work um and uh if i write something that i don't that i don't think that i i nailed or i didn't try hard enough on it and i go back and i read that i it's disgusting to me you know i i so i i think that's the answer is just be really critical try to try to be original and and then you know look at your own writing and have others look at it and 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 always be thinking about how you can how you can improve
2: i'll add one thing to that that i recommend sometimes which is spend as much time editing as you do writing oh sure yeah sometimes it's easier yeah. to actually do the initial writing than to make it a good piece of writing Oh, for sure. And and that takes, as you probably will know, having just done a book, that that takes an enormous amount of both copy editing and uh, uh, revisiting syntax and and revisiting organization structure and things like that. And it is a grueling process to edit well. It's it's harder. It's harder than writing well in certain ways, I would say. Uh, But most people don't want to put in the time to do it.
0: Yeah, that's the thing I had. You know, when when I was in high school, that's basically the thing I really had to learn is that the, you know, it's the thing that kids don't want to hear is that you have to do like two or three drafts and and like that's a very low, <laughs> three drafts is is just the start, you know, right. uh, this, if, if, if it's going to be really good, you're going to be doing a lot more than three.
2: Yeah.
1: Cool. Um, last question. Speaking of writing, Ben, uh, where can people find you? Where can we direct them for the book? And, and even away from the book, some of the other places where you're going to be uh, publishing in the next, you know, early this fall as well.
0: Uh, I write for slate.com. I I wrote a post uh, already today. Uh, I usually write a couple of times a week. Uh, And so I'm, uh, I'm there at slate.com. I'm I'm at Ben Mathis Lilly on Twitter. Um, And then the hot seat, the book is uh, available anywhere books are sold. Um, A lot of bookstores have it, and you can also order it online uh, through your favorite retailer, whether that be a national uh, chain or, or a local, uh, local place. So it's really, it's out there everywhere. Cool.
1: Well, Tom, another topic covered off our list. So yeah, do, no, that
2: was great, you know, Ben. Thank you for your time. Yeah, and, really fascinating. Like with the book. Yeah. Columbia
1: football, which, you know, when you talk about relevance, probably we're coming out well, we're over 50 years before it was relevant, but still a good way to spend a Saturday afternoon in the Upper West Side. Yeah. So, right.
2: yeah. Well, maybe the school, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, Ben, thank um, you so much. Yep. So, once again, you've been listening to The Cusp Show. Our author, our guest today was author Ben Mathisilli, just wrote The Hot Seat, writes for a slate. Um once again I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host Tom Richardson. Go watch some football this week and we will see you down the road.